0: It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation.
1: The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Hello everyone, I'm your host Ed Gotham and welcome to another episode of Opto Sessions where we interview the top investors from around the world and covering their secrets to success. This week I had a wonderful conversation with Caroline Kai, Executive Vice President at Pazina Investment Management. She is also the Co-Portfolio Manager at Pazina for the Global, International, European and Emerging Market Strategies where she invests in deep value stocks. This strategy seeks to identify good quality companies At low valuations that are underperforming compared to their historic earnings potential. At Pazina, value isn't a factor, it's a philosophy. In this interview, we discuss which emerging markets in Asia are currently showing pockets of deep value, how to discover deep value stocks for yourself and calculating geopolitical risks. If you're interested in receiving a daily update on thematic investing in a stock market, where we keep you up to date on the next big thing Sign up to the Opto newsletter at cncmarkets.com forward slash Opto. Enjoy. Hello, Caroline. Great to have you on the uh, show today. How are you doing?
2: Um, Good. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, and how are you doing?
1: Very good. Thanks. Very good. Uh, Weather's been variable today. We've had some thunderstorms recently. It's quite interesting considering how hot it's been over the last couple of weeks. You're based in London as well?
2: No, I'm actually in New York, although we're having a little bit of uh, rain as well. So uh, so we're both, um, both having a, a wet day, <laughs> so <laughs> to speak.
1: Has, um Has New York sort of got back to normal now after all the COVID stuff?
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think everywhere in the US, it's more or less back to normal. And I think this is also the day where there's broader base to return to office across the, uh, the industry. So, you know, we've been back in the office for, for a while now. So it's nice to see the city coming back, see all the traffic, the, the people walking yeah. around. So,
1: Do you think that trend of work from home is changing slightly and the equilibrium is going to be slightly mixed or as in working partly in and out of the office?
2: Yeah it's a little hard to know for sure at the moment. I can only speak from our experience as an asset manager. We feel very strongly that we we work better, we're more productive, we collaborate better and our people develop better when we're all together in the office. So we're we're strong proponent of as much time back in the office as possible. I think it's a little bit of getting used to the commuting, being away from home after people having worked from home for 2 years, but the more you do it, actually, the more I think the benefit comes through yeah. um, for the individual and the organization. So, so I think at the end of the day, it's really you know, every organization making what they view as the best decision for their own um, business purposes and balancing that against individual needs.
1: Definitely. And um, it's obviously been a very interesting time in the markets. Well, the last couple of years, a, bit, a very eventful. And you've got a big focus on emerging markets. So I thought we could start there. And how worried should people be about an emerging market debt crisis, given the state of inflation, plan rate hikes in, in the US, strength of the dollar, et cetera? What are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, after a period of fairly significant debt buildup, as what we have seen, not just specific to emerging markets, but also in the, uh, in the advanced economies, a financial or debt crisis is always a worry. So to start off, we worry a lot about that as well. Although when you look at it in the context of capital markets, I think the impact of rising dollar and inflation has, first of all, a huge humanitarian impact mm. on the poorest economies and populations, right? Already, you know, we're seeing very catastrophic impact in countries like Sri Lanka playing out. And and I think if you look at the latest estimate from the International Monetary Fund, 30% of EM countries um, and actually 60% of the poorest countries are already close to debt crisis mode. Um, So the issues are fairly significant in terms of the populations it covers. However, when you look at it from a capital market perspective, which is really more exposed to some of the bigger and perhaps more closer to middle income economies, In emerging markets, it's a slightly different picture as a result. Now, we don't have a crystal ball, and we're not macro specialists, so I'm not going to be here making big macro forecasts. What I can offer are just a few observations that we have. One is, if you look at how much policy rates have risen in EM, for instance, so far, it's a little over 3% on average, whereas, you know, in the developed world, it's about one half percent. So EM has already been on this tightening path and at a magnitude that that's uh, multiple of what we've seen in developed world. I only bring it up to illustrate the point that actually in emerging market, people are used to higher inflations than what we've seen in developed world. So high inflation is not new. It's not to minimize what's happening, but it's not new. And a lot of the businesses over the years have developed you know, what I would call coping mechanism to operate in such environment. Right. The second thing is for EM emerging market countries that are more reliant on internal funding sources i.e., you know, less external funding, dollar borrowing, for instance, they still have the pain of rising rates and inflation to deal with, but not the type of external debt crisis um, that we witnessed during the Asian financial crisis or the, or the you know, LATEM, um debt crisis going back in history. The last thing I would just highlight is China is sort of the big elephant in the room, just given the size of the Chinese economy and the weak fundamentals that we're witnessing today, because of the uh, the property market correction, the sort of COVID zero policies, and uh, and the general regulatory uncertainty, the only observation I would make here is China is actually a significant holder of other emerging market countries' debt, and for the most part, has been viewed as you know perhaps an impediment to the uh, early restructuring of debt in some of the EM countries. So how things play out in China and how it sort of uh, works with international creditors and organizations is something new versus what we've seen historically.
1: And do you think it's gonna get worse before it gets better?
2: Yeah, it is difficult to, to say. It's kind of you know, wondering whether things are gonna get worse in the UK before it starts getting better. When you look at the rate of the uncertainty in the energy market and really just sort of a change in a weakening overall global macro, it's hard to be overly optimistic about what can happen in the uh, in the short term. Now, on the other hand, I would always separate what's happening in the macro from what's going on in the valuation. Things can look really bad, but if the valuation is already discounting, A lot of the fear and the pain, then you actually have a fantastic starting point from an investment standpoint.
1: So, if we look at emerging markets as a whole, are there some that are most interesting to you, and why?
2: Um, Sure. So, we actually are seeing, you know, opportunities across a really diverse set of industries and economies. If anything, I would say this is sort of the most broad-based set of opportunities that we have seen in a while. So, we're doing a lot of work on. Chinese companies, for instance, I hope that doesn't come as a surprise to to yeah. anyone who sort of uh, is familiar with the uh, the value philosophy. Given all the uncertainties, given the correction in valuations, we're seeing a number of high quality Chinese businesses showing up in our screen and becoming an interesting potential ideas for us. Asia is by and far where we have the most exposure in our portfolio and are doing a lot of the new research. Latem, there are selective opportunities in some countries like Brazil, but by and large, it's not an area where we'll find a huge number of new opportunities. And then Europe, for the most part, you know, we're, we're finding a select few things, but not a whole lot at the moment either.
1: Interesting. So yeah, So Asia's the focus spot, basically. Yes. And so your strategy relies on discovering these deep value stocks. How do you approach that in Asia? So you, you've highlighted some countries that you're interested in. What's the next step to find these individual stocks?
2: Sure. So first of all, what we do in emerging market is really not that different from what we do in the US or Europe when it comes to you know finding sort of interestingly value Good businesses. I mean, maybe just taking a step back on our philosophy side, you know, we really think about ourselves as trying to buy good businesses when they are on sale. And usually that happens only when something has gone wrong in the business that's obvious to everyone. But the resolution of that something that's gone wrong or uncertainty is not. So what we look for are companies where the current earnings are in general well below their long-term potential or what we call normalized earnings power of the business. You know, we want to pay as low a multiple as we can for that future earnings potential. And we have developed a proprietary screening model that helps us identify sort of the cheapest 20% of emerging market that may have those characteristics. You know, you're paying a low price, relative long-term earnings. And through our fundamental research process, where our analysts and portfolio managers work together to dig into kind of what's gone wrong in the business, what are the key things that you have to believe for the businesses to improve? And equally importantly, if things don't get better or if we're wrong about the potential for improvement, what do you have at risk? from a long-term capital perspective. And for the most part, we're looking for, you know, 20 to 30% in terms of potential downside. But in exchange for that, 60, 80 or 100% on the upside. Mm -hmm. So the asymmetry that's embedded in these situations kind of allows us to be a value investor. So how do we do that in Asia is no different versus how we do that in the US. A name screens up either because the country macro or the company specifics are experiencing issues. And then we we dig into, you know, why do customers show up to buy the products and services in this company? What's the management plan for addressing what's going wrong today? And do we see the starting point evaluation offering the type asymmetry that we're looking for? And if it meets all these criterias, then we can potentially consider buying it in the portfolio. And then at the portfolio level, you know, one important thing that we always focus on is, we try to have as diverse a set of underlying exposures as we can. So as a result, you don't have to know what needs to succeed going into the future. If we're right about sort of uh, the risk-reward trade-off embedded in each investment, and and we have a portfolio of these 50 businesses, all of which, you know, are in pain for uncorrelated reasons, and hence what will make it better is uncorrelated as well. Then we think you can have a value portfolio that will help you, that can potentially help you navigate the uh, the lack of certainty that people see on the macro front, but generate the uh, the type of long-term alphas that we're looking for over the full cycle.
1: And what financial metrics are you using to assess value? I'm sure you use quite a, a lot of different ones, but are, are there a few that stand out as, as some of the key ones you look at?
2: So for us, the way we think about valuation is really this uh, price to long-term normal earnings estimate. And for our own modeling purposes, we think of it as five years from now, what the business is capable of earning. And obviously there are a lot of other metrics like price to current earnings, price to book, kind of all value factors that can be a dimension of a stock being cheap. But the reason we focus on normal earnings is because you know what's happening the business today we think the market is fairly efficient in discounting that what the market is not particularly good at or efficient at is really looking out 3 to 5 years and saying why should this business still exist what's the probability of success in terms of management's turnaround plan right and i think we get paid for taking that long term perspective on how a business can and should evolve and trying to pay as low a price as possible for the business because things are not going well today and people are focused on what's not going well as opposed to what can be improved and what can get better over time.
1: And so a a very important uh, thing you look at there is, or calculate is a forecast of of the future earnings. Obviously, that's based on numerous factors. Can we dig into that a bit further?
2: Yeah, sure. So what we do there to to make the long-term forecast is really looking at, you know, longer term, what's the potential revenue path for this business given everything we see on the micro and the macro front. And then most importantly for us is actually not the revenue forecast, but rather the profitability forecast. Yeah. And the reason for that is very straightforward. If you're wrong about, you know, the revenue by 5% for instance, your normalized earnings will be 5% lower than what you thought before. On the other hand, if the business has 5% operating margin as opposed to 6%, then it doesn't sound like a lot. But by the math of it, your earnings will be down by more than, um, more than 15 16% relative what you thought, right? So when you think about kind of longer term, I know people are very focused on revenue and so forth, but really the most important thing is profitability. Yeah. Um, and to us, profitability is quite researchable and understandable if you have unique insights around the industry structure, the competitive dynamic, or the specific unique advantage from a cost or Market share side for the company, and our normalized earnings forecast also takes into account the ongoing cash flow generation capability of the business. So higher cash conversion businesses will get benefit, sort of, from a five-year out perspective based on the uh, on the quality of the business. So all in all, you know, I think of it as as a fairly comprehensive measure of both, you know, the long-term profitability potential of the business but also the, uh, really the underlying capital intensity and the cash conversion rate as well. All that gets kind of rolled into this uh, normalized earnings forecast. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we try to make decisions on. How cheap is the business? The one component I do want to highlight as part of the process and, and how we kind of think about investments is the normalized earnings feels like one deterministic forecast, And we fully recognize the future is always a range of outcomes for any company, right? And for any macro scenarios as well. So an equally important part of our process is to understand what's actually the range of outcomes that a business can be subject to based on both micro and macro factors. Okay. So you have a normal earnings forecast, which is a little bit like the center of distribution, but equally importantly is that range of outcomes that, you know, on the downside, if the worst case scenario from a micro and the macro perspective were to play out, mm-hmm. how much do I have really at risk? From an underlying capital and earnings perspective, and coming back to the process a little bit, we're willing to tolerate 20 to 30% potential downside from where we are today. But in exchange for that, we're really looking for 60, 80, 100% on the upside as relates to normal earnings estimate.
0: That's very interesting, and we hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions, along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show.
1: Obviously, an element of that risk factor is geopolitical issues. Is that something you try and assess in depth? And uh, I mean, in particular, obviously, internally, China's, you know been making some political moves that have impacted the stock market quite a lot on specific companies sometimes. How do you look into that?
2: Yeah, sure. So we do it in a couple of different ways. You know, again, kind of coming back to it, we view ourselves as students of businesses, really trying to understand why a business should be profitable in the first place and how that profitability can evolve over time, given what's happening in the industry and maybe what's happening in that country. We do not view ourselves as macro specialists. There are people way more qualified to make those forecasts. So what we do is, As a starting point, we take the market's collective judgment of what a country's uh, risk premium should be as one way to think about quantitatively. How would you adjust the earnings of a business in Brazil, for instance, against the earnings of a business in South Korea? For example, clearly given the you know the difference in shareholder protection, the difference in macro stability, there is a difference in what you would be willing to pay and what the market has been willing to pay for a dollar of earnings coming from these different regions yeah so we have a way to to adjust that quantitatively um, based on the history of uh, of discounts that we see in different regions of the world. Now the more interesting part really comes from, How do you connect the range of macro scenarios to the outcomes for this specific company? Mm -hmm. And that's really about if inflations were higher or GDPs were stronger or there are different regulatory scenarios, how can this business adapt and, and how solid is the balance sheet? How solid is the operating business model that it can still thrive and grow earnings in those environments? And what are you paying relative to that? Now, one of the things that we believe as value investors is, you know, <laughs> to say it a little bit facetiously, you know, there are only two types of businesses in our world. One is the businesses that are in trouble today, the other ones are the business that will get into trouble yeah. one day, right? Um, and, and if you kind of see the world that way, our view is we want to focus our efforts in the businesses that are in trouble today because when they are in trouble that trouble is already discounted in the valuation so you have a chance to pay a low price for it if you can figure out whether it has a realistic shot at improving over time right Mm -hmm. now country at some level operates similarly you know you have countries that are in trouble today or the countries that can get into trouble down the road so our view is we'd rather look at things where the trouble has already manifested itself. So a lot of that fear and pain is discounted in the share price already. And it's really not that different from sort of Warren Buffett's view. You know, you you want to be greedy when other people are fearful and you want to be fearful when others are greedy, right? So for us, when the geopolitical uncertainty is rising or has risen, and the valuation has come down in response to it, it could be an interesting area of opportunity to look for good businesses you know, that have a better shot at navigating those environments. And those are really the times that you get to pay low prices for a very high quality businesses in emerging market.
1: That's, yeah, that's a very interesting way of approaching this. That's uh, good to hear how in depth you've gone on that. And what factors are typically the reasons for... These businesses being undervalued. There's some common factors that you see in these businesses that you look at.
2: Yeah, sure. Sometimes there are common factors, but actually, as a, as a portfolio manager, you know, you you're really looking for as many different things that are causing companies to the valuations to go down and uh, and the businesses to have some some issues today, right? But generally, you know, we would think of it as one self inflicted pain. So the company. Did something, mis-executed on a strategy, missed the product cycle, something internally driven that led to the earnings decline and the and the earnings and the valuation pain. That's your favorite because then it's really about how does this industry, how does this management team kind of address what's gone wrong and improve earnings over time. Now there tends to be a component of the macro that impacts every business, right? So if inflation is running high or currency is weak, oftentimes it creates issues with passing through costs inflation to the end customer um, because periods of weakening currency and high inflation probably is not good for general economic growth and consumer demand. Yeah. Um, so if you're a consumer business, you have more trouble with it. On the other hand, these are the times that you get to buy potentially very high-quality consumer businesses that are really still exposed to the long-term structural growth in those regions with very strong franchises and actually be able to own them as a value manager. All right? So to your question, you know, we don't look for one particular factor that's making things cheap. If anything, we want to see as many different things making a stock cheap. But for the most part, I would break them down into either self-inflicted pain or external macro driven pain that's impacting, you know, a business that may be very well run today.
1: Have you got an example of a, a self-inflicted pain version?
2: Sure. So nothing is sort of ever, you know, a hundred percent clear between the two, right? Um, there's always sort of a little bit of a cross current between the two. But one of the names that we invested in before, we have largely exited at this point, is Hyundai Motor. So South Korean car manufacturer, one of the reasons that we liked Hyundai Motor as an investment was the fact that they were slow to the SUV trend in North America. Um, And as a result, they had a mix of products that were light on SUVs and heavy on cars, sedans. Mm -hmm. Um, So they went into the cycle sort of back in 2019, 18 period with a North American operating margin and overall auto margin that was uh, actually quite depressed relative where the industry stood and where peers stood. To us, that's not a permanent impairment to the business. You know, They recognize they need to have more SUVs. They were on track to deliver more of these models, converting more of the production capacity to those platforms. But it takes time and we could see the path towards a richer mix and and better margins over time. So we made the investment on that premise. Um, since then, you know, we we have seen them executing against that very well, and also they've navigated COVID particularly well, um, partially given, you know, they're closer to the semi-suppliers in Asia. So so they've had less of a volume disruption versus other auto manufacturers, for instance. All in all, you know, we've seen the earnings improve very meaningfully at Hyundai over time. Despite the issues that you've seen in the industry. And that's really about the mixture that's happening in the business.
1: That's really great. Thanks so much for that. And um, if we look back to emerging markets again, touching it a little bit earlier on, obviously listen to quite a few of the interviews and stuff you've done online and, and articles you've written. And you've pulled out a few other countries in Asia that are quite interesting, such as South Korea and Taiwan outside of China. Great. Right. Could we touch on them a little bit? Why are they interesting?
2: Sure. So one of the things that I think sort of, you know, are interesting about kind of China, South Korea, and Taiwan is really just the, the very diverse set of businesses that you can potentially invest in, right? If you look at a market like India, we're starting to see more diverse companies coming, sort of showing up as public companies. Um, but there, there tends to be a little bit more of a concentration of business models. In some of these other markets, um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, as a, as a manager, you want to see as many different types of pains as possible, right? So that, I think that's why we see Taiwan, South Korea, and China look appealing to us, just given the range of of different businesses that you can expose yourself to. South Korea and Taiwan are interesting because a lot of people view them as really having achieved almost a sort of advanced economy levels of income hence not offering the type of growth potential as other emerging markets. But for us, you know, as we mentioned earlier, it's not about the rate of growth. It's about the underlying profitability and the valuation you pay for, for these businesses. And there we see true global leaders that have emerged in these countries, true global industry leaders like Samsung, like Taiwan Semiconductors, but also kind of a lot of unknown names that, you know, occupy particular niches in different areas of the supply chain, and you're paying relatively low valuations for them. I think partially because people feel they go to emerging market for the growth, and they're not going there, sort of looking at things through a value lens. And and that's why, you know, we actually think it's quite interesting to be a value manager in emerging market. Yeah. Because not a lot of people are doing it, and and you think there should be more more inefficiency in that part of the market as a result.
1: And are there any themes in particular that stand out, uh, such as manufacturing? Possibly not. That is there any any common themes that you've seen?
2: Yeah, sure. So you know, it's kind of, I would group it at maybe there's sort of a, what I call the reopening theme. Yeah. Um, particularly in Asia, where things are behind the West. And the Latin or other parts of the world, in terms of reopening the economy, things going back to normal, and China obviously is uh, is a good example of of that. So we have some investments that are they are really trying to take advantage of the current pain associated with the the lockdowns and and the destruction in demand associated with that manufacturing kind of slash i would say technology is another example of that you know one of the interesting things that's emerging is for instance a lot of the businesses that we are buying in taiwan are really have been in the process of moving their manufacturing footprint from china into other low-cost countries Mm -hmm. in southeast asia really not so much for po- geopolitical reasons, but rather for pure economic reasons, right? Costs were rising in China, other markets are starting to develop the infrastructure, and they're migrating the uh, the manufacturing capacity as a result of that. So interestingly, if you want to take advantage of what's happening in Vietnam, you know, buying businesses in China or Taiwan that has been at the forefront of moving capacity there and hence, maintaining the the status of being the low cost industry leader is an interesting way to exploit that. And then, then I would say, you know, kind of the the fallen angels, uh, for, for lack of a better word. Yeah. And it comes in the form of consumer businesses that are bearing the pain of cost in inflation, consumer budgets being squeezed. Um, names like Alibaba in China, that's in the crosshair of sort of the the regulatory yeah. concerns, um, but really, you know, more of the business is is manifesting kind of the macro pain that we're seeing in China, as opposed to just the the regulatory impact. All of these are are themes that are that are emerging in our portfolio as areas of uh, of interesting opportunities.
1: And uh, you mentioned Taiwan. Um, obviously, it's a big point of discussion at the moment due to the relationship with China, the US, et cetera. How do you or do you continue to reassess your judgment on on risk due to the potential you know, geopolitical factors that are at play here? And is there at any point it becomes something you stop to look at?
2: Yeah, so I, I wouldn't say there's a point at which you stop looking at it. It's always what's the valuation relative to the range of outcomes, right? And... Now, one of the things that I that I do think is important when you invest in emerging market is you should always be very open minded about what the downside looks like, what the range of outcomes are. I don't think that means you don't invest in something, period, because you're worried about it. Because I can tell you everything to worry about in every market, yeah. right? <laughs> but um, but what it does mean is you you should think about position sizing very carefully. Um, And that is one way to control, to sort of, to put some guardrails around the risks that you embed in the portfolio, even for geopolitical reasons, right? And for Taiwan, you know, we, we really try to navigate this no different versus how we would navigate extreme macro events in any market, good balance sheets, good resilient operating models, industry leadership that can be sustained. Over time, as you get through a difficult period, these are all the things that you look for. And then you look at the valuations that you're paying relative to that range of outcomes, and you think very hard about the overall exposure that you have to kind of maybe one catastrophic macro event, right? Because it's there's not going to be one catastrophic micro event. It's going to be one catastrophic macro event. But whatever it is, I do think kind of the, the two sort of rocks or pillars that that we lean on as a value manager, balance sheet flexibility that allows you to come out of the other end, Mm -hmm. and the business model flexibility that preserves significant amount of the productive capacity or the core competency of the business is something that you lean into to navigate these uncertain times.
1: And I thought we could just finish with covering one of your recent investments in Asia and why you believe they offer deep value.
2: Sure. So one of the names that we added to the portfolio is Alibaba in China. So we have not been an investor in Alibaba up until the uh, last year, 2021. Now, obviously, it was a benefit of hindsight. You know, we we probably could have, we, we were probably still a little bit early in getting involved with the company. But let me walk you through kind of what we view as the core Attractiveness of Alibaba's business. So the company really has two fundamental segments that they operate operating. One is the e-commerce platforms in the form of Tmall and uh, and Taobao. There they are, I think, roughly 17% of Chinese consumption. So really, kind of a, a fairly mind-boggling market share of Chinese consumption. Because if you compare that to Walmart yeah. in the U.S., for instance, you know Alibaba is a much bigger presence. And because of the scale. And the brand position that they've built up of over time and really, you know, Alibaba's platforms as the destination for consumers in China. We view the, the profitability there as fairly sustainable over time mm-hmm. and should grow with overall Chinese consumption growth over time. And there's some market share loss they have on the e-commerce side, especially with Bydance, kind of the parent of TikTok and its Chinese version, um, starting to to enter the monetization phase on e-commerce. But overall, with e-commerce shares continuing to grow within Chinese consumption, Alibaba losing some shares within e-commerce, but also Chinese consumption presumably growing over time, we see that their overall e-commerce business on the, um, still on a growth path, albeit at the lower rate versus the history. What's interesting about what's happening on the e-commerce platform is the fact that the regulatory crackdown on uh, limiting the influence of these businesses, interestingly, has had the impact of scaling back the ambitions of everyone in the industry. And that has led to much more of a focus on profitability and cost discipline. Um, across the board. So what we anticipate is slower growth versus history in the core e-commerce business, but potentially higher profitability because of yeah. the belt tightening and the, and the exit of loss-making areas, right? So that's one component. And then you have the, uh, the cloud business um, where Alibaba is really trying to, to position itself as the AWS in China. The Amazon Web mm-hmm. Service model in China, and there we see them as the only one who has the unique combination of hardware and software offering, sort of an integrated offering that's superior to the hardware-only offering that you know we we see dominate the market, and really having built up a fairly formidable scale lead versus the um, the rest of the uh, the competitors in the marketplace. This business should grow. Was the ongoing development of China and really, you know, the ongoing growth of technology spending within the Chinese economy to improve productivity, to drive further growth. Um, and there's no reason to think the profitability there would be any different versus what you see was AWS in the US. So when you put these two pieces together, you know, we see the potential for meaningful earnings improvement at Alibaba over time. And for all of that, you're paying low double digit sort of low teens earnings multiple and and it was a business that's really you know close to 10% cash flow generation so even if it doesn't grow there isn't a whole lot of downside right but you know when yeah. you look at the quality of the underlying business we see the potential for meaningful improvement from here and that's why we're interested in getting involved despite all the all the noise and uh, and the geopolitical concern in the marketplace
1: yeah, very interesting. I didn't actually realize how big their ambitions were in the cloud sector. But obviously, like you said, from what uh, Amazon and Microsoft have done in the US, if it's a similar success in China, you can see it being huge. Because I think the profit margins are huge on that, Correct. On that business Correct. Area. And obviously, they've got their brand they're, re- they're sort of relying on as well, which right. is very right. well established. Thank you very much, Caroline. It's been a great pleasure to speak to you. Have you got anything you'd like to leave the audience with? Um, Where can they go to find more information on your funds or any content that you produce? Um,
2: Sure. So our website, www.pazina.com, is where you can find a range of information, you know, in terms of accessing our products, but also really the uh, things that we have published um, around Investing, particularly value investing, in different parts of the world. If you're just looking for resource on value investing, you don't have to buy our products. If you're just looking for resource for value investing, go on our website. You'll see a lot, find a lot of interesting uh, information there. And I guess you know, thank you for for giving me the time today. And if I can leave everyone with just one thought, it's you know, to us the most important thing, the most important metric that drives. Long-term, absolute expected return in any asset class is the starting point of valuation. And I think with all the uncertainty and pain going on in the world today, we're actually seeing very interesting starting point of valuation, really across the board in value land, but emerging market in particular, you know, where we have not seen businesses trading at sort of the five to eight times price to normal range. Um, that's where mm-hmm. we're finding new opportunities today. And that's what we're very excited about at this particular moment.
1: It does feel like values having a bit of a revival that might last for quite some time, longer than people think. So that's, that's great to hear. Thanks very much, Caroline. And yeah, again, it was a pleasure. Thank to you have very you
0: much show. for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Obdo Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.